morning. I'm going to be reading Hebrews chapter 7, 11 through 19. You can follow along in your scripture journal or your Bible, uh, your version app, or up on the screen. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Thanks, Eric. Good morning, everyone. Uh, we're continuing a series called For the Better. For the Better. And uh, the series, uh, the message title this morning is Better Hope. So For the Better, uh, Better Hope. And uh, when I, I kind of contemplated uh, speaking with you this morning, I, I thought about uh, a lot of different things growing up. Um, as we're in the holidays season, uh, just coming off of Christmas, getting ready for New Year's, a lot of family around and uh, a lot of little kids and a lot of questions about a lot of different things. And I think about um, how annoying I probably was as a child. I was, uh, I was super inquisitive and I remember adults getting frustrated with me, but not being able to connect the dots as to why they were so frustrated. Like, I'm just curious. I just want to know why. And uh, I find myself a lot uh, with little ones asking questions specifically, like when it's cousins, kids and all that, just being like, but why this? But why that? I'm like, I don't know. I just, I don't know. Make up a reason. And so I make up reasons often, like, well, because Santa told me. They're like, what? I'm like, no, just kidding. Um, Satan told me? I don't know. And they're like, yeah, like, I'll be under your bed later. They're like, what are you talking about? And they run away. Um, that's just because I like scaring kids, not because I'm a creeper or because I get under kids' beds. I really should have thought that one through before I said it. Anyway, uh, in either case, I know my wife's horrified. She's like, where is this train headed? We don't know, right? Um, in either case, I remember asking a lot of questions, and I remember uh, specifically uh, in the kitchen being enamored by cooking and baking. The idea that you would put things into a bowl, and then all of a sudden this amazing cake would come out. It's like magic to me. And so I always had questions about why things happened. And so growing up in somewhat of an ethnic uh, family, uh, all four of my grandparents are of Hispanic descent. And so uh, there were a lot of specific meals that my parents would make that were like amazing to me and the smells and the, all the different ingredients. And so I would ask questions and I could always tell when I was kind of pushing my parents' button because I would say, well, why do we do that? And my mom had a specific answer, which she would say, because my mother, your grandmother said, this is the way we do it. And I'm like, Okay. She's like, so that's the way you do it. And I was like, all right. You know, and uh, it's kind of like this trump card of like, listen, this is why it's because it's the way it's always been done. And so we do it that way. There was a, a story that I heard. Um, I think Elton Brown might have said it on the Food Network, <laughs> but I'm not 100% sure. I believe I saw it on the Food Network. I know I saw it on television where someone was telling a story about uh, a ham. And uh, you might have heard it 
uh, personally because people have repeated this story, but like a ham that was always cut in half and, uh, and cooked in half. And then one day a family member said, so mom, why do we cut the ham in half? And she's like, I don't know. We just always have. And like, so you always have to cut a ham in half in order to cook it? She's like, you know what? That's a great question. I don't know. Let me call my mom. So she called her mom, their grandmother, and said, uh, why do we cut the ham in half? She's like, what are you talking about? And she goes, well, every year you always cut the ham in half. She goes, that's because I had a really small oven and it didn't fit full, so I would always cut it in half. She's like, what? She goes, you still cut the ham in half? She's like, yeah, because I thought that's the way we do it. And uh, so I, I share kind of all those stories and thoughts because it somewhat resonates with everybody in the room in the, in the sense that there are certain things that we do because it's always been done. There's certain things that we do because someone has told us it's always been done. And there's certain things uh, that we do because it's familiar to us. We're just used to that being the way in which it's done. And so the question I want to ask you is, why do we often embrace the familiar over effective? Why do we often embrace the familiar over effective? Now, depending on how you're wired, you might be tempted to, to sit there and almost argue with the assumption that that question makes. Uh, there's some that want to say, listen, effective always wins over familiar. I don't even understand that question. If there's a more effective way to do it, I'm going to do it even if it's not familiar. And although that's a compelling and admirable thought, um, I want to tell you I'm confident I can find at least one example in your life where that is not the case, where you choose the familiar over the effective, either because of experience and or because of preference there's something that is familiar because of the way it's always been done, and so simply you do it that way. You know, maybe it's the, the coffee you buy instead of drinking what's made at the office. Maybe it's your favorite shirt or your favorite hat or blanket that should clearly be thrown away, and yet you hold on to it. Maybe it's the order in which you do something that at one time maybe was the most effective, but as time has progressed and technology has increased, there's a more effective or efficient way, but you're like, no, 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 I still do it this way. Why? Well, because that's the way I've always done it. I think there's some people that I know in my life that believe that maybe Satan came up with mobile deposit. They're like, what, you take a picture of the check? Like, yeah. Like, oh, I don't trust that. I don't trust that. I mean, you're just taking a picture of a check. How do you know it's going to get in your account? Like, because it does 100% of the time. I drive to the bank. <laughs> okay, keep doing that. So there's certain things that you just always do for a certain reason, and maybe you don't know why. Maybe technology has fed into it. The examples are really kind of endless about how there are some things, or maybe a lot of things, depending on how you're wired. You're like, oh, no, I do everything until I figure it out a certain way, and then I do it that way repetitively until Jesus comes or I die. Depending on how you're wired, the examples are endless. And maybe if you think this morning that you're the exception, that you're like, no, no, I really always choose the most efficient, then I want to challenge you at another time to maybe ask a spouse, a parent, a sibling, or a friend, what is it that I always do that makes absolutely no sense, and yet I insist it's the only way to do it? They'll give you examples, okay? It's 100% of us in the room because we're human. That's the deal. Well, like it or not, it's a human condition. There are certain things that we do because we've always done it. We're creatures of habit. Science actually tells us that we choose the familiar for two reasons. Uh, the first one resonates. <laughs> it's laziness. 
Like science literally says that our brains are lazy. I've talked a little bit about this on some level, but what they mean by lazy is that the brain figures out the way of least resistance to figure something out and then repeats it so that it doesn't have to expend energy rethinking things all the time. It's why we do certain actions rather quickly. When you were first learning to walk, you had to think about it a lot. Maybe you don't remember that. I know I don't. Um, But now, at this point, you get up, you don't have to think about it. Unless you have an injury that causes you to learn to walk again. And then it's incredible how you have to retrain your brain. You have to retrain the muscles to fire at the right time. And so there's certain things that the brain just kind of says, this is the way we do it. Now, autopilot. Let's just make sure it happens. The second reason that I really want to focus on because I think it resonates with what we're talking about this morning in the text is that it's comforting. That we're actually comforted by the familiar. Holidays evoke even more of this. Now, for some of you, we also have certain things that remind us of certain stuff that is not comforting. Have you ever eaten something and then thrown up right after you ate it? And then after that, you're like, I hate that food now. Or like even the smell of it, you're like, oh no, why God, why? There's certain things that I've gotten sick after that I absolutely love and I'm like, I will not let vomit ruin that for me. (laughs) Like I will eat it again, so help me. And it's because there's something about the memory of that that triggers a feeling. Well, to the degree in which it can trigger a feeling to the negative, it also triggers feelings to the positive. And there's certain things that we've experienced in the past The memories of those things are comforting to us. We're just coming off of Christmas, and so maybe there are certain smells that when you smell them, it's like it throws you back to childhood right away. There's certain sounds or songs that that you hear, and all of a sudden it evokes some type of anticipation or excitement. There's just certain things that when we hear them or when we see or smell them, when they're familiar, they comfort us. It's comforting. The Hebrew Christians were as human as we are, and they struggled with the tension of the familiar versus the better. The better. In fact, in this case, the familiar and what is known versus that which is perfect. So not just better, but perfect. Verses 11 through 12 says this, it says, Now if perfection, perfect, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, And then in parentheses it says, for under it the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise arise after the order of Melchizedek? Goodness, I knew I was going to mess it up eventually. Rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So, if, per- if perfection had been attainable through the law, through the Levitical priesthood or the law. So what the author is actually implying is that perfection is possible. It simply wasn't possible through the Levitical law. So if perfection is possible, I, I think you might not realize the depth of the weight of these verses in the sense that this would have been a shocking declaration to the people hearing this for the first time. What's actually happening here is the author is saying the Levitical priesthood, the law, the thing that you have been raised to fall in line with all the way back to Abraham, all of that stuff is not perfect. All of that stuff falls short. You know the law that should never be changed? 
it's imperfect, and by the way, it needs to change. This was a, a daring, weighty statement that would have been made. Shocking, even. These, these Hebrew Christians, having been raised in Levitical system, the authors using the terminology to clarify a claim, they're kind of establishing a claim, that Jesus is the great high priest over the entire Levitical system, and that perfection is, in fact, possible. So perfection was not possible through the familiar Levitical priesthood, and that system and the law could not accomplish salvation. And so that's where it's actually saying it falls short. So it falls short in the sense that it ultimately couldn't accomplish salvation. An interesting fact, you can't uh, accomplish your salvation through good works. There's no way for you to save yourself by doing good. I can't tell you how many people say that they're a good person, as if their one and only life was really about behavior modification, the attempts to be good. You know, we start talking about eternity and, and the, the claim is, well, but I'm a good person. Like, okay. The problem is at our core, even good people are selfish people. Even good people have the ability to be wicked people. Part of the reason why we say things when we see the news and something horrifying happens and we go, I can't believe that happened. My favorite is when they say, I can't believe in this neighborhood that took place. It's interesting, right? Because what they're actually saying is, I believed that in this neighborhood, we were able to shield ourselves from the fallen condition of humanity. What we're actually saying is, I want to distance myself from the wickedness of the world and act as though I don't have the capacity to do the same thing on any given day. It's not true. At our core of who we are, we are wicked and depraved individuals. That's why people do unspeakable things. People that we knew, he was so normal, such a nice guy, such a good kid, right? Why is that? It's because at the core of who we are, we have a fallen nature. And we can attempt to try to behave and put on the right face in the right rooms and act the right way all the time, or we can address the root issue of the depravity of our heart. Behavior will only get you so far. The behavior system doesn't work for salvation. And so something needed to change. That's the historical change that's, that's being talked about here, that the old covenant had been fulfilled through the person and work of Jesus, who like Melchizedek, was both a priest and a king. Eric talked about that extent last week, and we'll stand on his shoulders a little bit and move forward. Verses 13 through 14 says this, for the one whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. What the, what the author is saying right here, the one that we're about to talk about came from another lineage, a lineage that has never been a priest. Okay, That's what that means, served at the altar. Verse 14, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. It's interesting because uh, the, the author here, if you understand the context, if you are a Hebrew Christian, which I assume most of us in this room are not, <laughs> and if you were raised in the Levitical system, what's happening is the author is actually saying, I know what you're thinking, and so I'm going to state the obvious. If you have any exposure to the Levitical system, the only way you get to serve as a priest is if you are a Levite, if you're from the, the lineage of Levi. 
one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Those were the ones that served at the altar. Those were the ones that were Levitical priests. And so we're talking already about how Jesus comes from the lineage of David in order to fulfill the messianic uh, um, prophecy about the Messiah coming from the lineage of David, King David. And so that's Judah. And so I realize that people that are kings come from the lineage of Judah, and I realize that Jesus comes from the lineage of Judah. So just so you know, what's obvious is I realize no one from Judah has ever served at the altar. And I also realize, as you do, that Moses said nothing about priests. And the reason why they mention Moses is because Moses was the final authority on such discussions. And, uh, and so the, the, literally the author is saying, I kind of know where you're going and I'm going to address it in advance. Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. He was a descendant of King David. And so the Levitical system coming from the, the tribe of Levi under the old covenant, it was really clear, super clear. No king could function as a priest, like Eric explained last week. No king could ever function as a priest, and no priest could ever function as a king. In fact, we look back in history, and if, if you read the Old Testament at all, you see where um, there are kings that, in desperation, function as priests. There's a time where King David himself is actually running for his life, and they're waiting. They're waiting for uh, a priest to come and, uh, and give tribute to the Lord, and he gets impatient. And in the midst of his impatience, he says, I'll just, I'll do it. I'm the king. I'm going to do it. And he reaps the consequences of violating the Levitical system. So it's the rules. It's the law. Kings cannot be priests, and priests are not allowed to be kings. And the author is saying, but Jesus was the prophet, priest, and king. Perfection. The only one able to fulfill both offices. The only one able to give atonement for the sins of people as well as righteously rule over them with all authority. And it wasn't just to do both actions, but also a prophet to articulate the truth of the word of God. The prophet, priest, and king. Perfection. It's a compelling argument. And it's a compelling argument that immediately people that are Hebrew Christians would say, okay, I, I get it. You're saying that Moses never talked about priests coming from the lineage of Judah, so that's a no-no. In fact, you might be tempted to say, that's never happened. It's simply not allowed. And then the author says in verse 15 through 17, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was a king who functioned as a prophet, the only other one in history. Like I said, Eric talking about last week, and the thing that is compelling about Melchizedek is that Melchizedek is actually pointing forward to the coming Christ. Because when people have an issue with like, wait a second, the Levitical system doesn't allow a, a priest and a king, the author of Hebrews is able to say, really, what about Melchizedek? And you're like, well, Melchizedek was outside of the tribe of Israel. He wasn't Israeli, so he doesn't count. And the author masterfully in the, in the chapter before, or in the verses before, says, really, that's interesting because your forefather, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel, comes to Melchizedek and tithes to him and declares him as king. 
How do you recommend, how do you reconcile the fact that the loins that gave birth, that's the wording in the verse, I'm not like creepy talking about loins, <laughs> that the loins that gave birth ultimately to the tribe of Levi gave tithe to Melchizedek before Levites ever existed, before tithing was even part of the law, before that was a thing. And so the author is saying this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who became a priest not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, birthright, but by the power of an indestructible life, both righteous and holy. For it is, it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And quotes Psalm 110. That's a quotation from Psalm 110, which is a messianic uh, reference that connects the reality of Jesus' right to be both king and prophet. It's, it's, a, it's a powerful connection where Melchizedek is pointing to Christ. The father of their nation acknowledged Melchizedek is prophet and king, and now, I'm sorry, is priest and king, and now another has arised, this one Jesus that, that the author of Hebrews is talking about. Levitical priests, even high priests, died and required a successor. So no priest had ever filled the role forever. It's impossible. You die. But Jesus, the great high priest, serves forever. Forever. He died for our atonement, being the sacrifice, being the, uh, the ultimate high priest that doesn't simply give atonement for the sins through the sacrifice of animals, but la actually literally lays down his life for you and for me. And then has victory over death and rises from the dead. And is able to come back and say, listen, I'm continuing to be the high priest and I can go into the throne room of my father. I walk into the holy of holies as priest on your behalf, mediator and king, ruler of your life. It's a powerful connection that's taking place here that honestly our minds can't really kind of fathom in the sense that have you ever like sat and thought about forever? Have you ever done that? Like, oh, forever. And then more. Like, ever. I remember when I was a kid, it would totally wig me out. Like, wait a second, mom, I have a question. She's like, what? <laughs> so when, like, when did God start? He's always been. He's always been? Like, when? Because I couldn't comprehend that my parents existed before my birth. Right? Like, as a kid, you're kind of like, my, like, nothing existed, and then I was born, and that's why my parents were on earth, was for my birth, you know? So whenever they would talk about their childhood, I was like, what? You were alive before me? And they're like, yeah. I'm like, tell me more. Have you ever been driving down the throughway, and as you're driving down the throughway, you look over at a community, and you're like, people live there. Like, that's their place. Like, that's the place that they grew up and they went to school. I don't even know what school district that is, but, like, that's their world. It's crazy. You guys are looking at me like, I'm crazy. Come on, have you never done? Okay, you've done that. Some of you are like, yeah, just, come on. Was, we've been up for 48 hours wrapping gifts for other people. <laughs> so I get, my mind gets blown away with the idea of just other communities in our world. The idea that God has always been and will always be 
It's incredible. It's profound. We, we get a taste of eternity, and then we start to realize that the implications of the way we live our lives in this, let's say, 120 years, if you're lucky or unlucky, depending on your perception of getting old, but 120 years determines where you spend forever, eternity. And yet we live so much of our lives as if we have to negotiate the now. It's a jumping off point. Something kind of incredible happens as this kind of table is set about the the reality of the awareness that Jesus embodies prophet, priest, and king, that, that he is perfection, that in the order of Melchizedek, he is now walking in to the fullness of perfection. And verse 18 says, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. This is a big deal verse. The author is literally setting the stage and then going, oh, and just so you know, the familiar, the old covenant, the thing you've lived your whole life obeying and thinking about, the 660 plus laws, which is what the Levitical system was, like it was over 600 laws that they had to obey. They had scribes that would walk around with Pharisees because they couldn't remember all the laws. And the scribes would be like, hey, that one, broken. What? Yeah, you're not allowed to lift your left hand on Tuesdays. You're kidding. No, that's in there. Trust me. Like, all right, no, you're in violation. That's not actually a law. But I'm just saying like 660 laws, like how do you remember them? So scribes literally spent their life memorizing the laws so that they could point out imperfection. (laughs) Could you imagine? That's why people weren't real big fans of the Pharisees. They were keeping these laws and it was crushing people. And the author of Hebrews is saying, Listen, the old covenant, it needs to be set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Hugely offensive to their culture. Uselessness in Greek actually means, in the original language, it actually means unprofitable and to no advantage. So, the Old Covenant is weak and unprofitable. It, it, it provides you no advantage. It's a huge clarifying statement that could also be misinterpreted as dismissing the law. That's not what's happening. The author's not dismissing the law. The author is saying it is weak and of no advantage. So Romans 7, Paul, the Apostle Paul says that we should be grateful for the law because it reveals our great need for a savior. Isn't that interesting? So you've got a whole mess of people walking around going, you broke that law, you broke that law, and you'd be like, oh my gosh, I broke another law? You're kidding. Yeah, you need to uh, go and sacrifice two doves, you need to sacrifice a lamb, you need to sacrifice a goat. You're like, dude, all my livelihood is going out the window because all I am is a hot mess. And the thing that's interesting is that the high priest once a year would actually go and provide sacrifice for accidental sin. Literally, it was called accidental. So basically, you violated the law accidentally. You intend, like you did not have any intention in violating the law. It just happened because there's so many. And so you had to actually supply a sacrifice because of the things that you broke accidentally. And so Paul masterfully says, listen, the law serves an amazing an amazing purpose in your life. It's to reveal our great need for a savior because you're being crushed by the law. 
You can never be good enough. You can never behave enough. You see, our inability to modify our own behavior through our own effort, it shouldn't crush or condemn us, but rather it should awaken our heart to the gospel so we can truly declare the gospel good news. It's good news because we realize, wait, so I don't have to be condemned all the time? You know, there's a difference between condemnation and conviction. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin so that we can ask for forgiveness to our mediator, Christ, who stands on our behalf. So that we can say, God, would you forgive me and see me as your blameless, sinless son? Can you see me as Jesus? And we're forgiven. Condemnation is a tool of the enemy to say, doesn't matter how hard you try, you're still not good enough. You messed up again, you're worthless. You're not a child of God. Look at what you did. That's condemnation. That's a tool of the enemy. You see, there's a difference between conviction and condemnation. And if you can't negotiate the difference between the two, then you're caught in the tension of trying to obey a law. When people say being a Christian is too hard, I can't do it, they don't understand the gospel. They're trying to follow a list of rules. They're trying to fulfill a law. And the law is weak and useless, of no advantage. With the exception that it points out your need for a savior. You see, the law is not useless or unprofitable in the sense that it has no value. It can be used to condemn, but it can never save you see, so it can, the, the law points out our imperfections, but it never provides savior. All it does is show us wrong. The places we fall short. Concerning salvation, the law is useless. Shows us our insufficiency. So on the one hand, the law is so strong that it's ingrained into the heart and mind of every human. Our need to obey the law is ingrained in every heart and mind of every human. You might say, that's not true. That is. There is right and wrong. And I know that a lot of people say that truth is subjective. The, the problem is when you start getting into the philosophy of truth being ob objective or subjective, you start to realize that there is an, an inherent good and evil. There's an inherent wrong and right. And when you have a conversation with someone, I've had plenty of conversations with people that are atheists and agnostic and everywhere in between. And I don't pretend to be more intelligent than them at all, but when I start asking questions about uh, how it is that they progress or how it is that they've moved forward and, and they start talking about um, society and good, and I ask them, how do you know that you're a good person? Well, because I am. Says who? If good is subjective and right and wrong is subjective, who determines that you are a good person? Well, I mean, I'm kind to people. Says who? If kind is subjective, if right and wrong is subjective, like you think you're kind, but are you really? Well, I mean, that's a good good point, but I think, you know, societal norms define that. And as we move forward and as we continue to evolve, well, then I have a question. What if we evolve to the point where um, it was completely acceptable to murder anybody you disagree with? Well, that wouldn't happen. Why not? Like, why wouldn't it? 
If we continue to evolve, like why, why wouldn't we begin to do that? And I'm obviously not going to unpack all of this, and I'm not trying to set up a straw man to knock over in front of you. There's a lot of deep thought and a lot of very um, uh, intellectual conversations that have happened and that need to happen with anybody having any questions about anything. But it's important to realize that when we start to, to talk about the things of God and we start to talk about the law, if you're in relationship with God, or if you're even considering relationship with God, you have to come to the place where you acknowledge the fact that the law or the need to do right or to do good is written on the hearts and minds of every human. Whether or not you choose to obey it, it's there. In fact, Romans 2.15 says this. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Well, their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And so I'm kind of cherry-picking a verse that's part of a larger conversation that you can feel free to investigate if you like. It's in context of the conversation that we're having. And what it's revealing is that every person feels the tension of right versus wrong. Now, does that mean that it reveals ultimately a God? That's a much bigger conversation that I'm literally hitting the tip of an iceberg so the law is powerful, yet it's not able to save. In that regard, it's weak. The law is powerful that it's written on our hearts, but it's weak that it can't save. It's useful in the sense that it points us to the need of a Savior, but it's useless in the sense that it doesn't save us. So listen, the law is weak and useless where salvation is needed because God didn't design the law to save sinners. The law doesn't exist to save us. Behavior doesn't exist to save us. You being good does not earn your way to Christ. Verse 19 says this, for the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. A better hope. The law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. A better hope. So you can place your hope in yourself. You can place your hope in your best efforts as we enter into 2020. And it's a new year of new beginnings. And it happens every year where you say, New Year's resolution, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I mean, gym memberships skyrocket. Everybody's like, This is the year. Everything changes. Until February, right? All good intentions to what? To modify our behavior, but it doesn't pan out. And so you can put all your eggs in that basket and say, listen, this year I'll be a better person. This year I'll be a better Christian. This year I'm not going to sin at all. <laughs> it's absurd. Or you can reflect on 2019 and realize that in your brokenness, in your need for a savior, you can live for the better with a better hope. Jesus does what the law could never do. He saves. We have a hope, not contingent on our effort or behavior, but a hope that is an anchor for our souls. And it's because of who Jesus is, as prophet, priest, and king, that we're able to draw near to God. It's because of who he is that we can draw near. It's through that drawing near to God that reorders the affections of our heart. 
So you might be sitting there and saying, okay, so if I follow that logic, then what you're saying is it doesn't matter what I do. I don't have to behave any way that glorifies God. As long as I love Jesus, I'm good. So it's like I can live however I want. No, there's theological names for that that are hardly worth our explanation, but that's poor theology. (laughs) I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is it's out of order. As children, we're told to behave. It's familiar. We behave. When we behave, our parents give us affection and tell us we're doing good. When we misbehave, we get negative attention. If we're a kid in need of attention, we'll get it any way we can, right? That's why some kids misbehave for the purpose of love and attention. But if you follow the illustration, you could say, listen, it's familiar that I behave. And so as I grow up, I start to put God in the context of this authority figure in my life that I have to behave for. And when I behave for him, he loves me. When I misbehave, he distances himself. That's poor theology. Because of who Jesus is, behavior isn't part of the equation. Drawing near is part of the equation. I love you while you were sinners. While you were an enemy of God, I laid down my life for you is what the word of God says. Which means God's love for you is what draws you near to him. And so we're drawn near because of who Jesus is. And when we have proximity to Jesus, it reorders the affections of our heart. The outflow of drawing near to God is modified behavior. It's not our best efforts. Because I'm loved, I live different. Because I'm forgiven, I can forgive. Because grace is awarded, I award grace. It's not like some exchange. It's not like, listen, when I get all the things together, listen, in 2020, when I reorder my life and I figure stuff out, then, whoo, then I'll be a Christian. I mean, I am going to impress God. I'll tell you what. It's absurd could never behave enough to figure it out. Jesus already did it. The prophet, priest, and king paid the penalty so that we have the ability to draw near. So that as we increase our proximity to God, the outflow is a reordered heart that transforms and is renewed every day. Immediate and ongoing sanctification. Sanctification happens at the moment of salvation, but then it grows in us as we draw nearer to God, as we speak the truth of the gospel continually to our heart, and we have to continually remind ourselves of the reality of who God is. We always say that something is required of us when we look at a text, and this morning is no different. So I have a question for you as as you leave this place, a question for you to ask yourself. The question is this, Who needs to hear me celebrate the hope of the gospel this week? I want you to consider to ask yourself, if this is true, if everything that Claude is saying is true, if the author of Hebrews is laying out concisely the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done, that he's the prophet, priest, and king, that he is perfection, that he fulfills the old covenant so that now we walk in a new covenant, not because the law is worthless and useless, but because it serves its purpose to point us towards the need of a savior. Then how do I live that life every day? Who needs to hear me celebrate the hope of the gospel this week? For some of you this morning, 
Maybe it has to be yourself. Maybe it, it has to be a declaration you declare to yourself to say, listen, I'm done. I'm done trying to, trying to behave. I'm done pulling up the bootstraps. I'm, I'm exhausted. I'm tired of, of feeling like I let God down at every turn. And so this year I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak the truth of the gospel to myself. I'm going to surrender my life. I'm going to allow him to be the Lord and leader of my life. And I'm going to celebrate the hope I have in him. If that's you this morning, it, it can be as simple as praying a prayer of surrender. Lord, I've tried to live this life for myself for so long. Would you forgive me of my sin? Would you come and redeem me? Would you be my priest? Would you be the king of my life? Would you allow that which you have atoned for to impact every aspect of my life and help me to live with you as the leader and king of my life? It's that simple to begin a relationship with the Lord. But for others of you this morning, maybe you've prayed that prayer or some version of it. I want to ask you, who's the person in your sphere of influence that needs to hear you celebrate the hope of the gospel this week. I'm not talking about some challenge for you to awkwardly try to to share an intellectual presentation of the gospel that you feel ill-equipped for, potentially. I remember the first time I tried to share my faith, it was on a school bus. I was in second grade. I had no idea what I was doing. I just knew that my friend could potentially be going to hell. And so I just looked at him and said, do you have a relationship with God? And he's like, what are you talking about? I was like, do you know Jesus? He's like, uh, no, do you? It's like, yes, would you like to know Jesus? He's like, no. He's like, well, you're going to go to hell. He's like, you go to hell. It went really well. <laughs> it, was, it was really powerful. I wish I had a better ending to that story. I tell you that because I think we get so like worked up about this moment that we force something awkwardly. And the reality is I needed to be an intentional friend with this person and allow him to see me celebrate the hope that I had in my life. And so who is it that's in your sphere of influence that needs to see you celebrate the hope that you have? Maybe it does mean articulating some form of, of the gospel. Maybe it means just sharing uh, your testimony. Maybe it means just being a friend to someone that desperately needs a friend. Holidays it's statistically off the charts for depression, off the charts for suicide. People at the end of their rope just faced with, my life is not where I thought it would be. And we have a hope. We have a hope within us, a hope. A better version for the better. We can live for the better because of a hope that we possess. And if you think that Jesus went to a cross and laid down his life so that you could just get that hope and hold it inside, then you are sadly mistaken. Because everything about who Jesus is and was was to send people out. Go to the highways and the byways. Tell the brokenhearted, tell the widow, tell the poor, tell the wealthy, tell everyone that they could know the hope that's in you. Who is it that God has placed in your sphere of influence? Because we're gospel-centered influencers in every sphere of life. That's what Centerway is about. 
Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it means putting on a different perspective in the way that you raise them to say, I'm not going to impose behavior modification on them and jack up their theology. (laughs) I'm going to instead lean into what it looks like to be a version of God, to be a good father, to be a a good mother, to be willing to say, listen, we're going to follow Jesus together. I don't know what it looks like for you. I'm not trying to impose it. I'm just saying the scripture requires something from every one of us, and I want to challenge you. Who needs to see you celebrate it? Is it one of your kids? Is it your spouse, a family member? I don't know, a friend in school? I'm not sure. Write that name down. Write that name down and start praying that God would make clear to you what role you're to play. Because we have a hope, a better hope. Let's bow our heads. So we bow our heads and just reflect and allow God to speak to our hearts and minds as to what it is he may be asking of us. I want to challenge you to, to either pray that prayer for yourself or to write down a, a name of someone. Like I said, a family member, a coworker. I don't know, and it doesn't necessarily have to be something you act on this week. Maybe it just is season of prayer where you're just praying, saying, God, would you, will you reorder the affections of my heart? Will you help me to live on mission? Because it's your one and only life. This is it. I want to challenge you as we bow our heads and close our eyes and reflect on what is it God may be asking us to do and we respond in song in a moment. I just want you to think of who that person might be, and I'm confident that the Lord has already revealed them. Like, It's always incredible to me how when the conversations happen, it's like all of a sudden a person's name kind of pops in your head or something happens in your heart. You're like, oh, it's that person. Oh, seriously, God, that person? <laughs> or you're convicted about the way that you just screamed at your kid as we walked into church this morning. <laughs> like, darn it. Let's just center our hearts and seal the word that the Lord's speaking to us. Heavenly Father, we just declare ourselves available. We wouldn't settle for the, for the familiar, for the known, for the behavior aspect of a relationship with you, but that we would lean in to the, the perfection of who you are. And God, that we would celebrate that hope. I pray, Lord, that you would be faithful to, to reveal names of individuals or, or people that you've laid on our hearts or minds that we could start to just reorder the way we think as we go into to 2020. That you would get all the glory and all the honor. Father, we're so grateful for the hope that we have. We want to celebrate that and respond in song. We also want to declare ourselves available to be sent for your glory. In your name we pray.